Hello, this is Doug Hadaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Not long ago, lawyers and activists gathered from around the world to compare notes about leveraging the law and mobilizing social movements to win hard-fought battles for people on the planet, even when the odds seemed impossible. They were brought together by a lawyer, an activist, and a storyteller who share their stories and lessons in an amazing book. The revolution will not be litigated. People power and legal power in the 21st century. In this episode of Achieve Great Things, we talk with Katie Redford, co-author of the book, co-founder of Earth Rights International and the Equation Campaign, about lessons you can use to take on powerful forces and win. Katie, let's start with your story, the very beginning of your work, joining legal advocacy and social movements. I'll set the scene. It's 1994. You finish your second year of law school, got an internship with a human rights organization, and found yourself in Burma. What brought you there? Yeah, I um, had spent time in Thailand on the Thai-Burma border in between college and law school, working on environmental issues as a teacher and uh, volunteering also in a refugee camp where I literally saw people running for their lives from Burma across the border into Thailand um, from the horrors of the Burmese military dictatorship, which was at the time and sadly back today, um, one of the most notoriously brutal pariah regimes in the world. And um, I knew at that time I was going back to law school and I sort of was like a, I would say, a generalized bleeding heart. I kind of wanted to fight for justice and truth and the rule of law, like these big ideals that we all, many of us, think about when we're going to law school. We've seen the movies, right? Right. And um, that really crystallized for me what I wanted to do as a lawyer. Mm. Um, I wanted to use the power of the international human rights legal system to hopefully help bring um, at least additional support in the human rights and Um, pro-democracy movement and struggle in Burma because it became personal to me when I lived on the border and so really went back to law school tunnel vision thinking about how can I be a lawyer for human rights and to help end military dictatorship in Burma. So I had an internship. I sort of looked for any internship with a human rights organization that was doing work in Burma and was assigned to investigate, document, and write a report on the connections between human rights abuses and the logging industry Mm. in Burma. And there were myriad abuses. Um, The Burmese military was burning down villages, conscripting forced laborers, Um, relocating entire villages. And of course, um, they're notorious for violence against women and rape as a as a weapon of war. And so all of this was happening in connection with the logging industry. And as I was interviewing people, there was this one person who I'll never forget. He was a student, had been a student activist in Burma's pro-democracy movement um, in 1988. And uh, where, you know, thousands and the whole country really took to the streets demanding human rights, uh, democracy and an end to military rule and was met with just a brutal crackdown and terrible violence. Thousands, tens of thousands of people probably were killed. And so the students at that time were like, well, 
<laughs> Nonviolent peaceful resistance isn't working so well in our country. That language doesn't work with this Burmese military. So they started a student army that was called the All Burma Students Democratic Front. And this student who was my age and had actually dropped out of medical school to become the minister of war in the All Burma Students Democratic Front said, you know, Katie, it's great that you're focusing on logging and it's bad and the abuses are bad, but it is the the harms are dwarfed by the human rights abuses, particularly slave labor that are connected to the oil and gas industry in this country. And in particular, your corporations from America. Mm. And I was like, well, it's not my corporations, you know, <laughs> but but actually light bulb, yep. you know, these companies that go out into the world and do horrible things are serving as ambassadors for America mm, yep. and in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I as an American was kind of connected mm. um, in these people's minds to the human rights abuses of this um, oil company, which is called, which was called Unical at the time. It's been since taken over by Chevron. This company had gone into a contract with the Burmese military like I said, a pariah regime. I mean, the U.S. had sanctions, you know, like the, the it was really, and Burma at that time in 1994, there was a global movement to divest from Burma. And it was known as like the South Africa of the 90s. So there was a global movement that was really modeled after the anti-apartheid movement globally to get companies to pull out, to divest, to support the student pro-democracy movement. And Unical was one of the only companies in the world and the only U.S. company that was still there in Burma. Um, and they had gone into a contract with the Burmese military, hired the Burmese army to provide, quote unquote, security mm. for this massive natural gas pipeline running through Burma um, into Thailand to sell gas on the, you know, and export on the foreign markets. And in contracting with the Burmese military, the Burmese military did what it always does when it provides quote unquote security right. or engages in security operations. It conscripted and enslaved thousands of people, not only to carry arms, ammunition, and you know supplies for the soldiers patrolling the pipeline, um, but also to provide security for the Western personnel and infrastructure that were coming in. So Americans were benefiting from the slave labor that was um, that they had contracted essentially the Burmese military to conscript and um and they were also forcing people to build the infrastructure for the pipeline roads bridges helicopter landing pads and the human rights abuses were were horrific because slave labor is bad enough on its own the it was women children elderly people and women were forced to do what they called double time which is they were working on the pipeline during the day and being raped at night by the soldiers um people being killed villages burned down to make way for the pipeline and this student minister of war said look we have written letters to the u.s government to the board and the CEOs of Unical, to the World Bank that is providing finances, financing for some of the infrastructure connected to it, telling them of these horrors and how this pipeline is killing our people and our country. And they've ignored us. So you're a law student. Would it be illegal? 
since we've tried everything else, if, would it be illegal for us to blow up the pipeline? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, hmm. Um, I haven't taken that class yet in law school, but <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure it's not illegal and it's definitely not a great idea. <laughs> it's not, not good PR for your movement. And, you know, it's like, God, there have to be more tools in your toolbox besides a pen, paper, and a bomb. I'm sure you could be able to sue this oil company, right? Like, if this were happening in America, we would definitely be able to sue this company. Many times over. Many times over. So I kind of committed at that time to go back to my third year of law school and figure out how do we sue this oil company for these crimes against humanity. Um, And uh, spent my third year writing an independent study research project, sort of like doing, figuring out how to do just that. Because it turned out actually that in the 1990s, which was known as the age of globalization, the globalization of law and justice hadn't, hadn't caught up to corporate globalization. And so human rights law at that time only applied to governments and government officials and state actors. Corporations were essentially above the law if they left the jurisdiction of the country Mm. where the human rights abuse happened. So the law at that time was you're subject to the law of land in which you're operating if you're a corporation. And operating in Burma, the law of the land was the rule of the military, the dictator, right? So no, no law at all. Um, So there was this massive loophole in international law that corporations were happily, happily slipping right through. And I was like, well, I remember the first day of law school, some professor said the law is dynamic. It is always something that can be changed. You just need the right facts. And I felt like the the right facts to change the law in Burma um, and the law globally for corporate accountability for human rights abuses were sadly the most wrong, horrific facts um, for the people who were experiencing it in Burma. Um, But, you know, long story short, wrote a paper. My professor was like, you know, cute. Like, I think I got an A minus and he was like, you've made the best possible argument you can with a losing argument. Um, this will never happen. It's unconstitutional. It's a terrible idea. And actually just like, you know, wake up and smell the coffee, Katie. And I was like, well, you're just saying that this will never happen because no one's ever tried it before. I graduated from law school. Um, A friend of mine from law school and a um, Burmese student, human rights and democracy activist, the three of us started Earth Rights with the sole purpose of suing oil companies for human rights abuses and precisely suing Unical for human rights abuses in Burma. And within almost the first year of graduating from law school, we filed the case. Um, Less than a year later, we actually won jurisdiction and it became the first case in legal history in which uh, human rights, in which a corporation was allowed to be sued and people from foreign countries were given access to justice in the United States when a U.S. company did something in their country. Um, And, you know, my professor was wrong and I was right. (laughs) Well done. Yes. And so that was really validating. But of course, it turns out that Unical isn't the only, you know, wasn't the only company that was complicit in human rights abuses in foreign countries. It was actually the playbook Um, and companies from countries like the United States or European companies were actually seeking out 
countries with little to no legal regulation, either human rights or environmental, to be able to, you know, do whatever they wanted to do with no oversight accountability or ability for citizens to access justice. And so that's the, that's how it all started. And the lawsuit absolutely was connected to the movement for democracy and human rights and justice in Burma because it targeted the financial enablers of this military and weakened um, the military's access to foreign capital. It weakened their ability to attract other investors because now the world was watching this case and it actually um, fed into this movement to isolate and expose this horrific regime and the corporate supporters um, of it and other horrible projects around the world. And they had a playbook, as you said. Mm-hmm. And now you've got a playbook, um, having brought together movement lawyers and activists and organizers from around the world to talk about cases like this, to examples where people like a couple law students and local activists, communities that are seemingly powerless have actually used the law and social movements to achieve victories like this. Yeah. Um, So let's hear about that playbook. There's been a lot of cases from Earthrights and in your um, career and all these great folks that you brought together from around the world to talk about it. What are the ingredients of the playbook to use the law and social movements? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's really important to understand um, what at least my conception of movement lawyering is, as opposed to public interest lawyering or community lawyering or impact lawyering, all of which are super, super important and, and are part of movement lawyering. But at the end of the day, the number one goal of movements and movement lawyering is to shift power and to transform systems and structures of injustice by sort of confronting and disrupting and lessening the power um, of powerful, overly powerful institutions or entities. And in this case, we're talking about powerful corporate fossil fuel corporations um, and lift up and unleash the power of those who are not given access or marginalized from from, you know, the the power that they are due um, Mm -hmm. and should have. And so in this case, as you said, we're talking about indigenous people and poor ethnic minority villagers from Burma, one of the most oppressive countries in the world at that time and again today, taking on a U.S. oil company on its home turf Mm. in the United States. In U.S. courts. In U.S. courts and winning. And so right away, the powerful oil company has to show up in court and answer questions and can't hide behind this sort of, well, what happens in Burma stays in Burma, Mm -hmm. right? Out of sight, out of mind. And they have to face these indigenous villagers and answer questions. They can't can't escape, Mm. right? You can run, but you can't hide. And the the long arm of, of the law brought them right back into court. And so that also lifts up the power of the communities who, if they had not had this opportunity, would have basically had no 
remedy or no opportunity to seek justice. And there is nothing more disempowering than having than having no hope and mm. no way to change your own situation or to man justice and accountability for something that happened. And so just the fact of the opportunity of having a remedy and having an ability to walk into court and tell your story and say, this is what happened to me and sort of look the perpetrator in the eye and say, you did this and I want justice. Um, that's mm. empowering already, yeah. regardless of what happens at the end of the of the case. And so right away, one of the most important ingredients is the ability for those who are have less power to face off against those who have power to tell their story and to make their demands heard. Um, so storytelling, I say, is, is a really important part of justice, and it's an absolute central ingredient to all movements. Um, and that, that I, I would say, is an important ingredient. Another one is that movements, you know, social movements that are able to or that seek systemic, structural, and transformational change are led by and must be led by those who are the most directly impacted and who have the most to gain or lose mm. by whether that movement succeeds or fails. And that's actually one of my critiques until recently of the climate movement, which it's been led by really important people and and strategists and scientists yeah. and lawyers, but it's lacked um, that frontline leadership of folks who are most directly impacted. So up until very recently, I would say the climate movement has really been about, or the climate strategy has been about getting the best science, the best data, yep. um, and presenting that to the highest levels of government, global government, the UN, and you know governments around the world and saying, here's the science, here's the data, and assuming and hoping that those people in power would do the right thing, right. which hasn't happened, as we know. However, when, for example, the youth climate movement took to the streets in 2019 and started striking from school and, and really sparked the global climate movement, the mass mobilization, mm -hmm. um, to demand a climate emergency and to recognition of the climate emergency. The youth are on the front lines of the climate crisis because every single person who is a young person today is directly impacted and will be directly impacted already, you know, way more than, than us old people <laughs> will be. And not to mention having the least to do with causing the problem. Right. Um, and it's not until those folks who are have the most to gain and lose are leading and the spokespeople with the movement infrastructure organizations around them the and the movement strategies around them, like litigation, like media and communications campaigns, like follow the money and finance campaigns, like political organizing. All of those things are absolutely necessary um, levers of power and tactics and t of movements to deploy, you know, and help put in the hands of folks seeking power against the powerful. But they're not going to work if you don't have the folks for whom it's a matter of life and death front and center telling their stories, speaking truth to power and speaking power to power with all those 
tactics Mm -hmm. around them. Yeah, what's another recent example of these ingredients coming together either to achieve a victory or victory in progress? Yeah, I, I would say Standing Rock is a really, really powerful example of that where you had, I mean, actually just a handful of youth at Standing Rock um, who were horrified and outraged um, at the Dakota Access Pipeline coming onto their lands so close to their water, desecrating their sacred sites and their ancestors who are buried there, um, threatening their their lives, homelands, and livelihoods and and futures. handful of youth started that movement with you know, by running actually from the Standing Rock um, reservation to to Omaha from that the elders and the community at Standing Rock started protesting um, they started to follow the money to see who's financing this this mm-hmm. terrible pipeline and as they literally put their bodies, between their lands, their water, and the equipment and the soldiers and the corporate personnel that came to build this pipeline, there started to be attention and it sparked first local attention, then national attention, then international attention. And gradually, like a snowball, Mm. it turned from a handful of youth to hundreds of people from the Standing Rock Sioux tribe to the Cheyenne River tribe to other indigenous organizations to national environmental organizations to other youth-led organizations who were inspired by the Standing Rock runners and youth to people demanding, well, who's who's paying for this pipeline? Who's underwriting and insuring, insuring this pipeline? So finance and shareholder advocacy mm-hmm. comes into play. People start litigating to stop the pipeline movement Lawyers yep. get in the game. Obviously, we all know about Standing Rock and the iconic movement because of the highly effective media, social media, um, and you know, print media, all the media mm-hmm. campaigns that were brought into play. And so, I think that was the first time, really, that global attention focused on the incredible destruction of indigenous land, um, the threats to life, to water, to sacred sites, and also the climate um, that fossil fuels bring. Um, And so, again, that was a movement that was grounded in and led by those on the front lines who had everything to gain and lose by what happened, Um, but it became global with all of the other things around around them. And yes, the Dakota Access Pipeline was eventually built. Um, the Standing Rock you know, movement is still fighting to shut it down, and I believe they will. There was just a huge press conference yesterday. Senator Merkley, the Standing Rock communities came to the United States, met with President Biden to demand a shutdown. Um, The Army Corps of Engineers is looking at it again. And so it is possible that this pipeline will be shut down. I think even though the pipeline was built and operates today without a permit, without an easement Hmm. and without an environmental impact study. Yeah, it's crazy. It it sparked. I mean, the youth climate movement, Greta, says that she was inspired by the Standing Rock Mm. youth. That's how she learned 
and and embodied um, her climate advocacy. And you remember the first thing she did when she sailed from Europe to the United States was visit the Standing Rock mm-hmm. Reservation because of that. And so the global climate movement, I think we can say, has many of its seeds in Standing Rock um, and all of those ingredients that I think are necessary for successful movements you can see in Standing Rock. And again, a movement is different than a campaign, which might be like, okay, I'm, I have a campaign to shut down this pipeline. A movement is about fundamentally shifting power. Mm. Tribes have sovereign right to decide what happens or not on their lands. The youth should have the power and the voice to determine and input into what their future is going to look like on this planet. Mm-hmm. Corporations need not have that power that they currently do, particularly fossil fuel corporations. And the movements are really about challenging, disrupting, confronting, and taking away that power um, and uplifting and unleashing the power of those who have the most impacts. And these examples to segue from that to what you're doing now with the equation campaign, these examples we've been hearing about were folks on the front line sort of of keeping the carbon in the ground, right? They, yep. were, they were at the front lines of the extraction of carbon, which of course is going to harm everybody, but they were sort of at the front end of that. Yeah. That's kind of what you're up to now with the Equation Campaign, right? Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, absolutely. So the Equation Campaign is a 10-year fund campaign and strategy um, that started in 2020 to fund and invest in the power of movements on the ground to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Mm-hmm. And it absolutely in, takes everything that we've just been talking about um, as the core to our strategy um, to stop the expansion of fossil fuels in the United States. The science is absolutely clear um, that we have until 2030 to cut fossil fuel emissions in half. And in fact, now the science has been updated because we are going backwards. So now we have to actually cut fossil fuels basically by 75% in 2030. And so we cannot afford, the world, the climate cannot afford to build one more fossil fuel project. In fact, we have to be winding down the existing fossil fuel projects everywhere around the world if we're going to be able to have a fighting chance at a, at a livable planet. And yet the United States is right now the biggest producer and exporter of oil and gas in the world. We have the biggest expansion plans in the world. And yet we call ourselves climate leaders. Well, where we are leading is to the edge of the cliff that we need to be walking ourselves back from. And so the Equation Campaign is funding movements in the United States on the ground where the industry is trying to expand, um, and then funding the movement infrastructure organizations around those frontline movements working hand in glove and in solidarity and in lockstep with those movements to keep fossil fuels in the ground. And so we go where the industry is trying to go and we try to stop them before they can even get started. And where that is in the United States 
are places where they, they're called carbon bombs. Mm. They have the potential to emit a thousand, I think a thousand gigatons of CO2 emissions. Um, I mean, they're mega, like we can't afford to build one of them. And we have 25 of them in the United States um, of like less than 200 in the world and 25 of them are here. And that is primarily in Appalachia, um, Northern Appalachia and the Ohio River Valley where the fracked gas boom of the Marcellus Shale and the Utica Shale are, could, you know, single-handedly burn the planet. The Permian Basin in, in Texas and New Mexico, the Gulf Coast, Texas, you know, all along the Gulf Coast. Yeah. Pacific Northwest and British Columbia and the Great Lakes region. All of these regions are where the industry is trying to expand or keep going some of the dirtiest projects in the world. And then the last priority region for us is in the Midwest and the Plains states where the Keystone XL pipeline movement, the the movement, the Cowboy and Indian Alliance Mm. movement that defeated the Keystone XL pipeline so beautifully, barely had a minute to catch its breath when the industry is like, okay, now we're coming into your neighborhood with carbon pipelines, Mm. which is the latest false solution that the industry is proposing, saying like, oh, don't worry, everyone, we're going to keep drilling, transporting, exporting, and burning fossil fuels, we're just going to capture the carbon and pipe it, you know, across the country and inject it into the ground. And don't worry that this technology is untested, really dangerous. And even if those two things weren't true, nowhere close to scale, but it's basically a lifeline for the industry to be able to keep doing what it's doing, producing and exporting and burning fossil fuels. And so all of those places, we're funding the frontline communities and the frontline movements who are fighting to protect their land, their communities, their water, their ancestors, the people and places that they love, fighting to protect them from these dangerous um, projects. And by doing so, protecting all of us from a climate future that nobody can live in. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to do. <laughs> there sure is. The book has great um, inspiration, like the story you told about Unical. Of course, Keystone XL pipeline being stopped in its tracks using the techniques you're talking about. So there's a lot of inspiration and just hard-nosed practical lessons in the book. So thanks for your leadership and getting those stories told and those lessons shared. So ending on a hopeful note, considering all the work that needs to be done, what gives you hope for the future? When the front lines are resourced and connected, to the strategies and organizations and movement infrastructure that we've talked about, they win Mm. every single time. And this is why, again, in the context of the climate movement, the oil and gas industry cites this as the number one threat to their ability to expand. Mm. So you don't even have to listen to me. (laughs) I know it works. Every story in the book shows how it works, but the industry knows it works also. And so I'm hopeful because that's actually one thing we agree on with the oil and gas industry, which is the frontline led movements to stop oil and gas succeed and keep it in the ground. And so if we can just continue to resource and support 
and be in solidarity and power, we will win. And that's what I'm doing. I'm so lucky to do that. And it's like um, one of our grantee partners and one of my good friends, Justin J. Pearson, who your listeners might know um, from his infamously being expelled from the Tennessee legislature. He's one of the Tennessee three Mm. um, for standing up to power and uh, about guns. Um, But before that, he actually cut his political teeth fighting pipelines and still fights pipelines in, in across the country. And Justin J. Pearson says something that is very powerful and very true, which is the front lines will never lose because front lines will never give up. For listeners who want to learn these lessons and put them to work, the book is The Revolution Will Not Be Litigated, People Power and Legal Power in the 21st Century. Thank you, Katie Redford. Thank you.